Hi, this is Morgan. Welcome to the Splendid Yoga Podcast. I'm here with Taylor Lancaster. Taylor, how do we know each other? Tinder. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. I met one of my best friends on Tinder on a dating app. Right. Did you enjoy dating me? I definitely enjoyed dating you. For a while. <laughs> but then I hated it. And then it sucked. And it turns out we weren't supposed to date. We were no, supposed to be best buds. Definitely not. I mean, I think... I mean, people get so hung up about relationships in general. So, like, Tinder becomes this immense pressure on people. Even if it's just like, oh, I want to go on Tinder and hook up with somebody. Um, but I think if you're honest with yourself and you're able to, you know, be real and talk to your to the significant other that you met on Tinder and just be like, hey, this isn't working, and then give each other enough, enough time apart that you could actually have a decent friendship afterwards. But I think that's hard in general for people because people want certain things. They want marriage, they want kids, they want careers, they want these specific things, and they think there's a specific order in which those things happen, and life is much more based on chaos than that, I feel anyway. Um, Taylor, I'm going to ask you the question I ask everyone. Yeah. Do you remember your first yoga class? Yeah, definitely. What happened? Eddie Elner at Yoga Soup. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was vehemently against yoga. I was like, it is for white suburban yoga moms who have way too much time on their hands. And that's a huge judgment on my part. I acknowledge that. Um, and that it couldn't be fun, and it was like super lighthearted music. And at the time, I think I was 24, 25. So, like, I was interested in rock and roll and punk rock, and, you know, being. Um, and yoga wasn't in, in my view. And I walked into Eddie Elner's class um, with a buddy of mine who, unfortunately, has since passed. And Eddie was playing rock and roll music and laughing and singing and dancing in the middle of the yoga class. And I was like, this is amazing. And so, like, I got inspired to, like, practice yoga in that way, in that, in that free-form, non-denominational style of yoga that I still love to do. All right, I'm going to circle back around to what you were talking about, how most people think we need relationships to happen in a certain order life needs to happen in a certain order and your experience has been that life is chaos yeah so why do you think people crave that order because they well at least at least at least from my own experience um being addicted to drugs and alcohol was very much a quest to find order within the chaos of my own mind Mm -hmm. because if i could remain high or drunk then I knew what to expect mm-hmm. the next time I got dry, uh, the next time I got drunk or mm-hmm. high. Mm-hmm. So when I got sober, I didn't know what was coming down the pike. Mm-hmm. So getting sober, I had to refocus my attention towards a certain type of order for a little for a little while, so that I could get some get some. Uh, get a little more ground for safety like going to meetings every day and talking to the same people every day and going, going out for coffee with the same people every week, mm-hmm. working the steps in a specific order. Um, and then in that way, I could see that life could happen on life's terms as opposed to my own, to my own terms. So I think finding tools to um, 
have finding tools to help me live a chaotic life is is ultimately the most beneficial rather than making making life fit into inside of a box. So you mentioned a few of those tools for your specific circumstance, and I'll mention uh, for the listeners that you've been sober now, has it been 14 years? Since 16 years. 16 years, your sobriety can drive. (laughs) (laughs) It's my sweet 16. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because what's interesting is I got sober when I was 20 years old, so, and now I'm 36, so I've been sober close to half my life. And um, when I got sober, they were like, "You should buy a, an AA big book and a and a black tux and a and a black suit because you're going to help a lot of people recover and you're also going to bury a lot of people." And I was like, "What do you mean? People are just going to start dying around me?" And going through those experiences of like, "Wow, like people get sober and then they stop being sober and then they, and then a lot of times they die because." Alcoholism and drug addiction kills people. It's really what it does. I remember reading, this is really depressing now, but in Anthony Bourdain's first book, No Reservations, he talked about his journey to sobriety, which, of course, he lost and then lost his life. Right. Um, He said, he read a statistic that four out of five people were going to relapse, and he was in a car with five people, and he was like, I'm the one. Everyone else here is going to die. I'm the one who's going to survive. And he was right for so long until he was wrong. Right. Um, and you've seen that over and over again with the people over in your community. What holds you, what makes you different? What makes your sobriety different? There's, abso- there's absolutely nothing different between me and Anthony Bourdain. That's the reality. Yeah. Um, I'm Why are you still cl- alive? I'm, I'm, the, I'm as close to a drink as someone with two days. Mm. The difference is... Two days of sobriety. Two days of sobriety. Yeah. Um, the difference is, is that I have enough experience to mitigate un- unwarranted circumstances like what I was talking about before like you never know what's going to happen the other day I was I'm, I'm, I'm in Hawaii right now with Morgan and she's here at the same time that I'm here um, with my with my family like yeah we're not here together yeah we're not here together <laughs> we're here together but not here together yeah we're here hanging out but we, it's you know somewhat coincidental hooray English and um, my brother was making a bowl of like mixed, uh, like a mixed drink of some kind. I think there might have been gin and some kind of like, uh, some some kind of like uh, spice thing. I don't I don't really know. I never had a spice drink because I was such a problem drinker that I used to drink space bag wine. Um, space bag wine. Yeah, <laughs> really? boxed wine. Boxed wine. You just pull it out of the box and you can hang it over your head. Yeah, I feel like space bag wine is like from the '60s, like when they're thinking about what life is going to be like in the 2010s or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this is box wine, just a cardboard box full of wine. Yeah. All right, go on. So he's mixing this this drink, and he walks by me with it, and I get this whiff, and I'm like, oh, my God, the, the pleasure sensors just go off, and I'm like, I'm, I'm dreaming about, you know, getting high again. I'm dreaming about all this, you know, the sex I'm going to have while I'm high. I'm dreaming about how easy it's, how much easier it's going to be for me to have sex with men while high. I'm, yeah. I'm dreaming about, like, uh, having no responsibility. I'm dreaming about... Um, hurting people yeah like all these things that like defined my life for the first 20 years Mm. um all that from just a whiff of someone all that from a whiff and then at the same time i was like okay tomorrow i'm going to an aa meeting Mm. and 
for now, I'm just going to remember like sobriety is the most important thing in my life and that everything else in my life is as a result of my sobriety. Mm. That so like in like of course there's something deeper, something more inexplicable inside of me that I you know, it's like the age old question, who are you? But like on, like right on top of that is like, oh yeah, Taylor, dude, here's what we got for you. You're an alcoholic, you're a drug addict. Sweet. Got it figured out. Yeah. So I think having that knowledge um, and also just like the last 16 years have been so adventurous and so full of life that I think that if I was somebody who was like, okay, I got sober, I had kids, I got a career, I did X, Y, and Z, I might, at least from my perspective, I might be more prone to picking up a drink because an unmitigating circumstance could come up in there, like a partner could get cancer or a kid could die, which I've seen people go through in sobriety, um, and they don't know how to deal with it, and they go back to drinking. Mm -hmm. And I've had so much death and so much life happen in my sobriety that I pretty much know how to handle situations that used, that used to baffle. Well, the, the situation never baffled me before because I never experienced anything before because I got sober so young. Mm. But, yeah. So what do you get from the meetings that just knowing you're going to go to a meeting the next day allows you to kind of battle through that, that moment? You know, I used, to, I used to think all these, like, different things about going to meetings. Um, but I have a really good friend who passed away about five years ago. He and I were really, really close. And he was sober, like, 30-plus years. And he always talked about how much he loved his family. Like, he had a wife and kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. Um, but um, when he goes to an AA meeting, he would point at the floor and he would say, this, this is my family. Mm. And that really, like, that always really resonated with me. Like, the other day I went to a meeting. I'm in Hawaii. I haven't been here since I was 15 years old, you know, while I was still, you know. Yeah, before you were sober. Before I was sober, while yeah. I was still getting high. Yeah. And I walk up to and I walk up to a uh, and I walk up to a meeting that's that's outside right by the right by the waves and there's a bunch of people sitting around in chairs and I and I'm sitting there and I'm just like I'm feeling it and I'm feeling connected and I'm feeling feeling like I belong with perfect strangers and I look across the room I look across the group and my buddy Mike is there from Portland <laughs> so it's like you're all like when I go to an AA meeting it's like coming home mm. and, I, and Ram Das who who just passed away. Mm -hmm. um, after a long and very fruitful life, even after a stroke, mm -hmm. he always liked to say, we're all just walking each other home. Mm -hmm. And when I go to, oh. <laughs> um, when I go to an AA meeting, I feel like I'm being walked home. Oh. I feel like I'm, I'm like on, I'm on the right path. And as different as I live and as different as everybody else lives in, in an AA meeting, we all get the basic fundamental thing of like, we need each other. We're here because we need each other, and we need each other because we need to be sober. Mm, yeah. Another big part of your sobriety journey has been the walking that you do. You have walked yeah. across the United States to protest GMOs. You got a Congressional Medal of Honor for that. I did. You are currently, you just finished the, the PCT, the Pacific Coast Trail. Trek or trail? Is it a trail or a trek? It's, it's known as the Pacific Crest National Pacific. Scenic Trail. That's so many, so many words. So many words. PCT. <laughs> the PCT. It basically is a trail that follows as close to the Pacific Crest yeah. as possible. Right. If it actually followed the Pacific Crest, a lot of people would die. 
4,700 miles? No, uh, 2,700 miles. I doubled it for you. So, it's tw- <laughs> so the mileage that I did was 2,683. Yeah. But a lot of people do 2,653. Ah. Because when they get to the Canadian border, they pass over. They get this, like, special permit to where um, they can cross over. Yeah. But when I, when I flipped up north, um, I, hit, I hit the border... And then I just hiked back south, so I ended up doing another thirty miles on top of that. But I probably did. I probably did close to closer to like, you know, twenty nine hundred because of all the you know uh, all the reroute stuff and all the water, all the uh, walking up and down to different uh, water locations that were off trail and blah blah blah. Yeah. So. A lot of walking. A lot of walking. So I'm curious then, with a community such as AA, which is really global you know mm-hmm. it's really worldwide you could go i think anywhere in the world and find yeah. a meeting within a day even antarctica i think they have meetings in antarctica <laughs> yeah um in terms of the the ram das idea of we're all just walking each other home and here you are walking for a living and then <laughs> right. finding your family <laughs> yeah totally. amidst these aa meetings amidst strangers mm-hmm. who, who become um you know spiritual gurus essentially just in telling their stories right um I don't even know if I have a question. I think I'm just making that observation. I think that yeah, you I mean, kind of formulated your life here so that you can continue to walk yourself and your community home. Right. I mean, the interesting thing about AA is, like, for the first three years of my sobriety, it was, like, all about AA. I didn't really associate with anybody else, uh, minus my family. Mm. Um, and then when I was three years sober, I moved to New Zealand and found a, found a, found a sobriety community down there. Mm-hmm. And you'd move there to be a sober coach for someone. Well, else. this was, that was that was many years later. Oh, oh, okay, many years it was a different trip. Um, and there were there were times where I couldn't actually get to a meeting, and so I was like, "Wow, you know, what do I do now?" So I started like learning about how to create community with not sober people, and finding a lot of uh, weight and value in that. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like the, my communities back home were like, at least from my perspective, everyone was hanging out with other alcoholics. But when I came back, everyone was like, oh, yeah, I've been friends with this guy for like 10 years, and he's not an AA. He doesn't even have a problem drinking. Mm-hmm. And so I think gaining that perspective allowed me to go and do a lot of the other adventuring that I've done and creating community with perfect strangers. Because mm-hmm. that's basically what AA is. You create community with perfect strangers because you relate on a very vulnerable and intimate level. And so I think that's why I come across as very intense, because I'm not interested in small talk. Mm. I'd rather just sit there quietly and not say anything at all. Um, But having had that base of AA allowed me to walk across the U.S., live on my bicycle for two and a half years, um, hike the PCT, hike the Arizona Trail, and now, you know, on, on, onward and onward, you know, the, the lifestyle that I have now, which is primarily homeless, mm-hmm. um, um, is based around vulnerability and intimacy, which are principles of simple living. Mm-hmm. And I know, like, the word simple living is, like, tossed around like confetti these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at its, at its most radical, at its root, um, it is a very... Uh, intimate and vulnerable, vulnerableizing process. <laughs> this is not a word. Um, 
So a big part of AA is the the higher self. You have to have a higher self to guide you through sobriety. Right. And we've talked um, a lot about your history of Buddhism. You've studied Buddhism right. um, pretty intently. Uh, but you haven't attached yourself to an idea that there is a higher self beyond you. Mm. As in, as I interpret what you said, yeah. there's not some omniscient being who's looking over all of us. You just have your own consciousness, and that's your higher self. I think like I would describe that as like a conscience or an intuition. Mm. Um, how does that resonate within your community? You know, my, my AA community is multifaceted. There are a lot of... Uh, agnostics and even atheists within AA and I think the 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 verbiage that's used especially in the 12 steps and the big book of AA mm -hmm. um, is that um, that you need to have a higher power mm -hmm. but what I focus more on is the key words within those within those steps mm -hmm. um, so for like step three like could believe mm. or would believe mm. um, or to, to the care of. Mm. I focus more on phrases like that. Mm -hmm. um, because, like, in all honesty, like, I'm not an atheist. Like, I tried to be an atheist, and it just was not honest for me. Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely don't... I de there's a part in the AA book where it says, deep inside of every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. Mm -hmm. And I just never resonated with that. Mm. Um, I pretended and I prayed and I, you know, uh, you know, went to church and mm -hmm. I went to uh, temples and mosques and meditation retreats and all this, all this different stuff. And I just never found this like fundamental idea of God. And what I found was that, um, especially you know, growing up as as a um, uh, as a as a as a secular Jewish person, um, this fundamental idea of God was more a fundamental questioning of what the, the nature of reality is, mm -hmm. which I feel is so much more intimate than trying to ascribe as like a specific, like God is this or God is that. So what is the nature of reality? <sighs> Beats the shit out of me. Chaos. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it is very chaotic for me, but like in within that chaos is like this, like I can put my hand on my heart and be like, it's okay, buddy. Like, you're, you're going to be fine. The physical sensation of feeling your heart. Yeah. The physical sensation, I think, is what roots a lot of us to right. the reality of being in this world. Mm -hmm. I have a different attachment to spirituality than you. I do have um, a higher power. I don't, I wouldn't ascribe myself to any particular religion. Right. But my higher power, I can use the language of God, I can use the language of intuition, I can use, you know, I can speak about it with, you know, the Christians, um, I can speak about it with the Hindus and the Muslims, and, uh, and feel that we are all talking about the same thing, even though the people I'm discussing it with would vehemently disagree. <laughs> yep. um, where was I going with this one? So, what, what did you just say? Get me back on track. A uh, tangential experience The tangential with, experience. With... A higher self, with or higher with self. a with a. In terms of like having like oh I see the, the, the root of reality yeah. yeah so for me with the somatic work that I do and that I've done um, what brings us back into our bodies is what connects us to our higher self yeah so it's kind of this circular almost like I think of it like a Mobius strip like this infinite loop. And for me, it is like physically above. I think of a, a, shoot, a beam of light coming out of the crown of my head mm. going you know, towards something in, in the universe. But I don't think of it in terms of 
space mm. in the same way that I'm like, it's up. <laughs> right. I think of it more um, more of it as you would envision, like looking at a computer screen and what you're seeing is two-dimensional and what the computer seeing doesn't actually exist. Uh-huh. Um, that's how I experience the world. Is like we're just in this you know, basically video game. And what we're seeing is as much a construct of what we're expecting to see as much as it is the quote-unquote reality of what is actually mm. there. Um, but the more you can stay in your body, feel your heartbeat, you know, touch a tree and be like, I know this tree is real because I can feel it. Mm. I know that it's real in this moment, even though, you know, in some other dimension, there's no, there's no actual reality that can be ascribed to the situation. In this moment, in this body that I am in, this tree feels like this, and I know that it is real. Right. And when you take that with you throughout your day, as you're taking your footsteps, I feel this footstep. I know mm. this ground is real. Mm. I feel my heart beat stronger when I see this person. I know this attraction is real. The body is constantly informing um, the self of how it feels about things and right. how to progress on its path. So I find, it's, I don't think it's necessary to have a relationship to something like God but I think it is necessary to have a relationship to your body in the same mm. way that a lot of people have a relationship to God, where you have to honor the body as the temple. Totally. You have to honor the experience of the body as your reality, because if you ignore the body, you are in for some deep shit. <laughs> <laughs> for <And that's>, sure. <laughs> and that's what I think addiction is all about, is ignoring the body. It allows us mm. to ignore the reality of what the body is feeling it um, mandates that it feel a certain way, either more or less, um, one way or the other. But any addiction is rooted, in my opinion, in escape. We're trying to escape the reality of how our bodies feel. Mm. Most likely because of some incredible trauma that we've Mm. experienced. It's really hard to get out of this life without some sort of trauma. (laughs) Totally. And uh, one of the phrases one of my spiritual healers, Daniel Mara, uses is... um, if there's a purpose, if there's a purpose for all this bullshit that happened to you, it's to bring you closer to your source of compassion. Mm. And so you get so fed up of this insane human experience that you just throw your hands up and say, I can't do it anymore. I need help. Right. And he uses words like Jesus and God. And we have you know big debates about it. But for me, I just throw up my hands and I say, show me the way I need help. Right. And I feel that presence. Mm. I feel a visceral presence mm. guiding me. And sometimes it's, you know, a literal voice of like, this is the information you need. Sometimes it's someone else coming into my life, you know, when and you and I met. And that's so beautiful because like, it's not, it's not, and for me, it's really not in the believing in Jesus or Muhammad or, mm-hmm. or some ex- external force. It is the throwing your hands up and saying, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. Help me understand. Yeah. Teach me, so yeah. I, you know, help me be open. You know, I'll say, you know, often I'll say, at the end of my meditations, I'll just say thank you. Mm. As like, who am I saying thank you to? Am I saying it to me? Am I saying it to you? Am I saying it to something else? Am I saying it to nothing at all? Or am I just saying thank you? And as an act of saying thank you, that's enough. Absolutely, yeah. I don't think you have to direct it towards anyone. For me, when I do a gratitude meditation, I'm saying thank you for specific things. I'm no. saying it to every single piece of energy Mm. in the universe. Mm. I'm saying thank you to every single human, all the marsupials, all the palm trees, all the stars, all the suns, all the ocean, everything that has energy, this table, this chair that I'm sitting on, thank you. Thanks for doing your work so that I can do my work. Thanks for existing and doing the best you can. Um, 
yeah, it's definitely not just thanks to God, not just thanks to Jesus. You know, Jesus was a pretty cool dude. Jesus wasn't the only one with a good message. <laughs> the other thing that comes up um, when we're talking about that, while we're talking about this, is that, you know, people will often say like, oh, that's good for you, mm-hmm. that you believe in that. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you're friends with the person or if you're close with the person and the person is happy and whole because of this belief system mm-hmm. and they're positively impacting your life, then it's not just good for them. Yeah. It's, good for you. it's good for you too. And I feel like saying that's good for you, I, it, at least in my experience of saying that, mm-hmm. was a way of like defending myself yeah. and, de- and being defensive about like people's wish to be religious, wish to be, like, my buddy Omar, he and I have been friends for years, and he is a, um, one of the most loving and caring human beings I've ever met, Mm. and he's a, you know, full-on practicing Muslim, Mm. and um, I love the hell out of this, I love the hell out of this guy, and his belief system and my belief system could not be more opposite, Mm -hmm. but we have had a really good relationship for such a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, because we respect each other's opinion, we, because we respect each other. Yeah, I think it's in the allowance of letting someone else have a different right. experience, not just like, that's good for you, it's not for me. Like the, um, it's a quote from Amy Poehler, good for you, not for me, <laughs> which is a great concept. Right. But it is like, just good for you, period. Right. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad you like it. Do you want to try it? No, I'm good. But, you know, yeah. Let's go have waffles at, together <laughs> at, at Jay's. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just like allowing that person's experience to exist without needing to change it or even to put your own judgment on it because that's what that not for me is, right? That's the judgment. Right. Um, but just to let it be like, oh, that's awesome. I'm so glad you have that. Good, you, you found something that works. Totally. And then if it peaks your heart a little bit, if it makes your heart kind of peek up over the crest and be like, oh, what's that over there? Then maybe, you know, there's a new path for you to explore. Right. Um, Taylor, what are you working on these days? A lot. <laughs> um, I think the main thing I'm working on these days is what I'm, I'm what I'm always working on is like how to live more simply. Mm. How many how how little possessions I can own. Mm. Um, I think the shift from walking with a cart across the U.S. to riding my bicycle around for two and a half years to living out of a backpack has had an amazing shift in my perspective and I'm always just trying to carry less because that makes me more interdependent on other beings mm. which I think mm. in my, at least in my experience especially being being a sober person you know being helped by like very famous people and very wealthy people um gave me the perspective that you don't have to have everything you need Mm. because everything you need will be provided. In that same sense, don't you already have everything that you need? Yes. It's in the future. That's where the concern comes. In the future, I'm going to need this. Yeah. And that's where people get, like, desperate. Right. Yeah. Like, people are... Like, the common question I always get because I live out of my backpack is, like, oh, you, you must spend a lot of time out in nature. Like, what do you do about bears? I'm like... I've seen one bear in the 20 years that I've been backpacking, and and I just saw it. La- and I just saw it in uh, in uh, July or no, in August. August. And that bear saw me and ran like hell. Yeah, ran that's what like they hell. do. Yeah. I saw one in June. It did the same thing. It saw me. It was like I'm out. <laughs> 
Um, but I think I've also, so I'm sober and I think that is, obvi it's obviously the most important thing in my life, but spiritual development is also really important. So like, I don't know, like four years ago, I, I came out of the closet again. Mm -hmm. um, I've come out of the closet a couple times in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and this time I made the commitment that I was gonna like stick to it. I wasn't mm -hmm. just gonna like come out for a little while and then hide again. Mm -hmm. um, and as my friend Dan, who I just uh, texted with, he's like, I don't believe in coming out because I come out every day mm. and everybody comes out every day. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I'm, I'm still learning how, like even now, like sitting here, like saying that I'm out and I'm a queer person and I, and I you know, find you know, male bodied people and female bodied people attractive or even trans people, trans, trans bodies attractive is like, I'm like terrified like sitting here like saying this because like, I have my own homophobia around mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's a constant process. Um, but having friends and family that's, having friends and family that celebrate that aspect of me is, is, is really awesome. Um, and then in conjunction with that also, not ascribing to a monogamous belief system has been a, a source of constant fairly constant work because like people don't understand that I don't want to be in a monogamous relationship and they think that it's some type of avoidance of responsibility mm. um, so that's 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 <laughs> that's constant work mm. um, and obviously money money's constant work but like I pretty much I mean obviously I, I I, I acknowledge that I come from a place of privilege. I am a, I am a white, male-bodied person um, living in the United States, and my family has a, a certain amount of wealth that they're able to share that a lot of people don't get that. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty high on the horse mm -hmm. in terms of that. So a part of my practice of simple living is in, in rebellion of the powerful white male dynamic mm -hmm. so that I can be more intimate with what it's like to be um, living on the poverty line because I do live on the poverty line mm -hmm. so it is an active choice um, but that choice in and of itself is a privilege completely so what do you do then to um, help check yourself help check your privilege I ask a lot of questions. Yeah. I, I listen more than I talk. Mm -hmm. um, I, it's it's kind of like I speak when spoken to, mm -hmm. but not in that like, you know, children should only speak when spoken to or like women should only speak when spoken to and on down the list or black people should only speak when spoken to. Um, but in that perspective of like speaking when spoken to, I'm able to listen to what the other person is saying mm. and then I'm able to respond, have an appropriate response to what they said as opposed to just blathering on about whatever I have to say. How do you feel about the shift now, um, speaking of places of privilege, where you know, we have these uh, pharmacies essentially opening up, selling weed, right. where there are entire societies imprisoned for doing the exact same thing. I mean, it's, it's, 
So sobriety aside, yeah, it's disgusting. Yeah, societally, it's disgusting. Yes, it yeah. is. It is completely disgusting. I have a lot of friends who are still dealing with the ramifications of. You know, granted, they they are drug addicts and they 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 were afflicted with those diseases, but. You know, we're living in an addicted society, whether you're addicted to drugs or not. And I mean, capitalism is the main addiction. So for them to continue to struggle with being on parole for 10 to 15 years after spending 10 years in prison is How can they possibly ridiculous. become functional members of society? Right. But I think you... You're phrasing to use the word disease. I think that's what's yes. really missing. When you treat addiction as a disease rather than a crime, it's just a whole different way. It's, you're healing something rather than punishing something. Right. And I think that's where the language is kind of catching up with the reality of what addiction is. Because it's true, to be human is to be addicted. That's just the reality of it. Whether yeah. you're addicted to the relationships, whether you're addicted to you know defining yourself by your home and your belongings according to capitalism, whether mm. you're addicted to drugs or alcohol or sugar or whatever sure. it is, you know surfing can be an addiction. Even the so-called healthy things, yoga can be an addiction. Totally. Um, but when you treat it as a disease, as a dysfunction of how the body is, mm. <laughs> and then you get to the root of that, you know whatever trauma it is that you're running away from, and you're able to heal. It's you know literal brain damage at that point. You're able to heal right. those neurons. Um, then you're able to create a human who's ready for ascension. Then right. you're able to create someone who can move beyond you know the hierarchy of needs of just mm. basic survival and actually find their path and do the work that they came onto this earth to do. Right. Um, so it's you know an impossible question to ask Taylor Lancaster, privileged white dude. <laughs> what should we do about it? Yeah, because um, I don't really, because I don't really, I don't really know. No, there's there's no answer, and there's certainly nothing you're in a position to do to fix the penal system. No, I'm just curious. I guess my question comes around to like, um, how do you deal with your sobriety and that being your number one priority? your work for your life um, when surrounded by addiction constantly and seeing how that affects society in such a heartbreaking, detrimental um, and fatal way. I think it's easier because I'm an addict because I'm such an addict. You're honest about it at least. Yeah, I'm, aw I'm aware of it. Yeah. I'm aware of my addiction. So like it's easy for me to have conversations with homeless people on the street and like sit down and actually have a conversation with them because I'm not afraid of what will happen to me. So give me an example of like a conversation you've had. <clears throat> um, so someone that I have been friends with for years now is um, an elderly woman who's in her late 70s still living on the street. Mm -hmm. And she has been living on the street since she was 24, I think. So um, for, the, for the majority of her life. Mm -hmm. And she is an incredibly eloquent, beautiful person who has been preaching the word of Jesus for decades. Mm -hmm. But she preaches it in a way that um, is very based around how he lived his life. Mm -hmm. um, 
And she has inspired me deeply to continue to whittle my life down to the core. Mm. Um, the core of simplicity. Yes. Yeah. I think hiking trails, too. I think people find trails who need healing. And I have a lot of friends whose, you know, whose names I won't mention here um, for their own anonymity who have approached me about like needing to be sober, you know, not really having the, not really having the resources to get sober um, and not necessarily feeling like they're alcoholics. Mm -hmm. So like going to an AA meeting doesn't really interest them. Mm -hmm. But being open to that. And in regards to what you're saying, like, you know, I'm a privileged white dude and this and this and that, and how, like, is there anything that I can do? Like, I'm not, I'm certainly not going to take on the penal system because, like, I would need, I would need a, there would need to be a lot more woke, the, the hashtag woke, <laughs> woke people um, that are willing to do something about it mm. for that to happen. Mm -hmm. But I think on a one-on-one -on -one level, it's very, it's very, it's very simple to do. Mm -hmm. um, just to listen. Just to listen. Yeah. Just to listen and respond with helpful suggestions and then, and then saying, how does that land for you? Does that resonate? Yeah. How does, does that act, do you think that would actually work for you? Because yeah. I think people offer advice mm -hmm. and then they don't ask if that advice feels true. Right. Which is the main thing. Yeah. It's like being a privileged white dude. It's like, okay, offer a suggestion. Mm -hmm. It's really good. Mm -hmm. But then ask the person mm -hmm. how they feel about it. Mm. I think a lot of people don't do that regardless of, of age or race or creed. So what is some universal advice that you think might resonate with just about anyone? I've been reading or I've been listening to a lot of Mr. Rogers stuff for the last year and a half. Mm -hmm. So coming at it from the Mr. Rogers perspective, especially if I'm talking to Americans mm. that are you know, in their maybe like mid twenties to and be and and and, and upwards, mm -hmm. they'll know who Mr. Rogers mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. and having conversations in the way that he would have had. Mm -hmm. um, so, like saying things like, or just ask, or just ask, asking a lot of questions like, "How are you doing today?" And then, you know, getting the the getting the like, "Oh, you know, I'm great." Mm -hmm. How are you really doing? Mm. And then, if the person is doing really great, just be just being accepting of that, mm. but like offering them the space, mm. the safe container to express how they really feel, because that's what I get when I go to an AA meeting, yeah. depending on the AA meeting, yeah. um, <clears throat> or in a or in a Buddhist circle or in a supportive environment mm. that's similar. So find a find a community. Find a community. Find your community. Um, the other thing that I often suggest is finding some sort of meditation practice. Yeah. And explaining that a meditation practice can can really be anything. Mm. Um, but the way that I have found it helpful mm -hmm. is by doing sitting meditation. Yeah. And actually just sit. But that. But honestly, that's that's all. 
often too intense for people. Yeah. There's a lot of trauma. Yeah. I mean, I went through a lot of trauma in my life. And are you comfortable discussing any of that? Yeah, I mean, I was molested as a kid. I was I was raped and as an adult. Um, I was beaten up for being gay. Um, I went through psychiatric treatment for running away from home. Uh, the list goes on. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot, dude. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've had I've had sixteen years to be sober with that information and to continue to gain new perspective on that. So mm. I think also like giving people the time, mm. not giving, uh, allowing the space for mm. people to take the time mm-hmm. in order to recover from these things. It's a lifelong, it's a lifelong process. Yeah. Having patience with other people's healing. That's, like, that's like, hard. <laughs> like you and, you and I have been friends for three, almost three years three now. Years, yeah. And pff, fuck dude, like, I've seen you go through massive change. Like the person you are, the person who who you were three years ago is much different than. I mean, not. It yeah, the yeah. person who you are is much different from so the person different. you were back yeah, then. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Totally. So. Thanks for having patience with me, dude. Oh yeah, thanks for having patience with me. Of course. Yeah. Patience with me. Um, Taylor, thank you so much for chatting with me this morning. Of course. Uh, Taylor Lancaster is walking around the nation, uh, pretty soon to be walking around the world. You can find him on Instagram at Tender Living. Is that right? At yeah, Tender Living. At Tender Living. Um, Taylor's a great guy. He's really inspired uh, my veganism. He's why I became mm-hmm. vegan. Um, he's a great vegan mentor. Uh, he's also an incredible Thai massage therapist. Um, uh, I was able to receive some work from him today. and. As I have for many years, my body feels just so much better after getting some body work done. So if uh, Taylor's going to be in your neck of the woods, I recommend begging him to give you time Because <laughs> he doesn't like to do it. you got to beg him. <laughs> um, yeah. Taylor, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you for being my friends. Oh, right back. <laughs> Namaste, friends. Namaste.